Man, today is an exciting day with the Jasper groundbreaking, and uh, we are so pumped as a church as we multiply. We started off the beginning of this year talking about the vision to seek the welfare of the cities that God has sent us, and it's been amazing to see what God has done in Jasper already. And so if you are a part of the, the generosity going towards multiply and giving, I just want to say thank you. Because of your generosity, we were able to pay cash for the land last year. We were able to buy that. Yeah. And now we're able to break ground on that building. And so we're very, very excited about being planted in that community uh, because God has already opened so many doors with city leaders, with community leaders, other churches. There'll be other pastors there today praying uh, for our church. And so it's just been a a really cool experience to see God bless uh, as we move into that community. So make sure you come out today at two o'clock if you can. Uh, Now we're starting a new series today called The Arrival. And, and we're in the Advent season. Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas. And so today, in the next three weeks, we will be looking at this idea of the arrival of Jesus. The word Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. It comes from the Latin word, which means coming. And so as we kind of set our sights on Christmas and and all that that entails with Santa Claus and gifts and all that kind of stuff, that's fine. But we don't want to miss, obviously, the fact that this really commemorates the fact that the most notable person in human history arrived. The most notable person in human history, God himself, God with us, arrived. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to start today looking at the fact that his second coming is coming. There is another advent and we are preparing and kind of an anticipation for that. And then we'll kind of work our way backwards to his first coming, which we will celebrate on Christmas Eve. All right. Before we do that, though, would you pray with me before we get into God's word? Father, thank you for your grace in our life. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done. You are God, but you are God with us. You, you came to rescue us. And so God, we thank you for that. And as we open up your word today, God, I pray that you would bless our time together. Open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you would have us to hear. God, and I thank you, the fact that you have given us the hope of the gospel, the hope of the fact that Jesus came and dwelt among us and died for our sins. And God, I pray that we would live in light of that. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse eight is where we're gonna be today. And we're gonna look at some commands in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. So let's look at this, Romans chapter 13, starting in verse eight, it says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul, in writing this, he opens up uh, Romans chapter 13 talking about us being subject to authorities, subject to the governing authorities. We are a people under authority. And so God put in place the authority structures that we have, the governments, the kings that we have, no matter how crazy we may think that they are or not. The idea is they are all subject to God. 
They are all subject to him. No matter who is ruling, no matter who is reigning in a country at any point in time, they are subject to God and God can remove them, place them at any point in time. But he says, we are under their authority, so we are to pay taxes, literally. He says, we are to pay what we owe because those people are put there by God. And then he kind of transitions and says, but owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, a lot of times people kind of take this verse and use it as a way to say, see, we should not have any debt. They kind of focus on the first phrase there where he says, owe no one anything. What I believe Paul is saying is not that it is a sin to have debt. What he's saying is pay what you owe. That's, that's what he said just a few verses earlier. Pay what you owe. Jesus said in Matthew 5, someone wants to borrow, lend. There's not a problem necessarily with borrowing and lending. Now, is it a good idea to get out of debt, especially bad debt, as good as possible? Absolutely. Absolutely, right? There's a difference between appreciating assets and uh, depreciating assets. And so we should do our very best to live as debt-free as possible. But the emphasis on the phrase here or the sentence is not about what we owe people in the sense of a monetary value. He's saying, listen, pay what you owe. The emphasis here is, but you will never be out of debt to love people. You'll never be out of debt and loving people. Let me say it to you like this. You could never say, oh, I've paid that debt off. I've paid that one off. I am good with loving people, right? You ever seen the signs, you know, I'm nice to one person a day and that person's already come or today's not your day, right? The, the idea of a Christian is we can never say, you know what, I'm just done with loving people. Enough of forgiving those people, enough of loving those people. What a great message around holiday time, right? With families, crowded shopping malls, traffic, right? Especially on Highway 20, good Lord, right? I don't know what they were, somebody was smoking crack when they designed that thing, right? <laughs> the idea is you and I can never say, never say, I'm not indebted to love people anymore. I love how Origen, the, one of the early church fathers said it. I'm gonna read this quote to you. He said, the, deb, the debt of charity, which is another word for love, is permanent and we are never quit of it. For we must pay it daily and yet always owe it. The emphasis here is the only debt that should ever remain outstanding is to love one another. And you know the word their love is God-like love. That debt is never paid off. That is a debt we always owe. And you can see that as a negative, like, oh, I always owe that. Or you can see it as a positive because that's the way God sees you. See, this is God-like love. This is God-like love. So what that means is God will always love us. God is indebted to us, not in the sense of like he owes us, but the fact that what he's saying is because of my son Christ, I will always pay the debt of love. That's why he says this is the fulfillment of the law. The whole point of the law, Jesus summed it up in Matthew 22, is to love God, love your neighbor as yourself. The same thing in each one of those is the word love. 
And so what he's saying here is the ultimate debt, the ultimate act that we make is in loving one another. So your other debts, pay those off as soon as you can. Yes and amen. Make early payments. Awesome. But we can never think that we will ever pay enough to have loved. And I think this is especially important as we think about the Advent season. As we think about the second coming of Christ. And the reason why is because what I have found a lot of times is the longer people become, or the longer people are Christians, the less loving they become. The less loving. It's like when you first trusted Christ, you were so loving. When you first got baptized, right, you'd share in Christ with everybody, like in Chick-fil-A, ordering nuggets. And you know Jesus? We're like, well, you work for Chick-fil-A. I guess so. Let me go over to Zaxby's. Do you know Jesus, right? The, the idea of it is, is like, you're so on fire, and we'll get into this more ne next week. You're abounding with joy. Like, you're just loving people. So excited. The, the fact that you get an opportunity to, to gather together with, with the church and worship and sing, serve. You mean you let me serve? Man, that would be awesome. I deserve hell. But you let me hang out with kids and students and park people. That would be amazing. But you do that a year, two years, five years, 10 years, and then you start coming to the church like, yeah, God will love gum parking team. Where's my coffee? Right? Let me, let me just... What if you showed up next Sunday and, and there's no coffee? <laughs> How loving are you going to feel? I mean, let's be honest, it's not even the best coffee in the world. We spend a lot of money every year in cafe just to caffeinate you, right? <laughs> but do we come and gather together because we're so sure of the fact that God loves us and we want to see it as an opportunity to love others. Coming together to fulfill the law. See, I think a lot of us, because of entitlement, selfishness, and we'll get into this more in just a little bit, just the way we view the world, we forget the debt we're in. The debt we're in. Ultimately, the debt we were in to God. But God so loved us that he sent his son. And now our debt is not that we repay God for what he did, but we pay it forward to others by loving our neighbor. This is why he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love is the fulfilling. That word fulfilling means the completion of the law. And so as believers in Jesus, our whole mantra now is love. Our whole identity now is love. We should be the most loving people on the planet. I mean, look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Don't literally turn there. But it says the fruit of the Spirit is, anybody know the first one? Love. And most theologians believe the way it's written, it, the fruit is, the word there, fruit is not plural, it's singular. So the word fruit is referring to all of it. And most scholars believe that the fruit of the Spirit is love. That is what he was talking about. Then the rest of those are a sign of love. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
Those adjectives there should be what describes believers more than anything else. But is that the case normally? Are we normally the most loving? Are we normally the most joyful? Are we normally the most with peace? Patience? Mm, you lost me there. Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, oh, self-control? It's because we have misunderstood real love. He loved us. And now it's an opportunity to live out that love. But I think there's another reason. I think there's another reason why we don't live like that. Like those things don't describe us. And I think it's right here in the text. Look at where Paul goes next. Look at verse 11. He says, besides this, the commandments, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. I love how Paul emphasizes this. He says, listen, owe no one anything except the debt of love. That is the debt that you can never pay. You can never exhaust that one. You always love one another. And then he says, besides this, you know the time. Like, oh, it's 8.48. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying here. You know the time. What is he talking about? You know the time. You know the time we're in. When he's talking about you know the time, he's talking about the fact that you know Jesus already came once. He already came once. You know that. I mean, Paul's writing to people who were probably still alive when Jesus was there. So listen, if, if any of y'all should have the motivation to love one another, it's because you saw love. You saw, he walked around. You saw what he did. You saw how he acted. You saw him on the cross. Saying, Father, I forgive them. You saw that kind of love. And, and here's the thing. We know because he came back from the dead, he told us he's coming again. You know the time. And see, every New Testament believer, every New Testament believer thought that Jesus was coming back before they died. They thought, like, if you would have told them that 2,000 years of human history was going to, to come at least before Jesus would have returned, they're like, you're crazy, man. That's why when you read the book of Acts, they're all giving their property away and selling and giving generously. Why? Because they're like, hey, Jesus, come back next Thursday. But think about it like this. How would you live if you knew Jesus was coming back next Thursday? You think your week would look a little different? Would you do things a little bit different? Well, yeah. If I knew Jesus was coming back next Thursday, for sure I'd do things a little bit different. I might call my mom and tell her I'm sorry. I might call my kids, say, please forgive me. I might go to my boss and, and, and make amends. And I might make somebody even a fruitcake, right? I mean, I, I, would, I would be generous. I would be... It's almost like you're saying you'd be a Christian. But let me ask you this. How do you know Jesus is not coming back next Thursday? Or next Wednesday? You say, when's he coming back, Pastor? I don't know. 
But here's what I do know. He's coming back. With all the craziness in the world going on, my sister, who doesn't really go to church, texted me about a month ago, and she's like, and she starts listing off things, wars, famine, all this stuff. Do you think we're in the end times? And I text her back and I said, sis, we've been in the end times since Jesus went back to heaven. We are in them, yes. We are in the end times right now. And when you live with that kind of urgency, oh yeah, I better get busy loving people. Right, Shawshank, I better get busy living or get busy dying. I, I, I better get my life on track, on course. Why? Listen, if anybody, again, if anybody has the motivation to love others, it's Christians first and foremost because we've been loved and second, what Paul's saying here is because we know Jesus is returning. We're, uh, we're Neo in the matrix. We took the red pill. When we trusted Christ, we took the red pill. Our eyes were opened. We saw reality. And so we can't live the same anymore. We can't just live life normal anymore. We, we, we can't just go about our day like everybody else at work trying to make a dollar to buy a bigger house and a nicer car and some brand, name brand sunglasses, right? We don't just live like that anymore. Why? Because we know all those things are temporary. We see behind the curtain now. We've taken the pill. Our eyes are open. We know the time. That's what he says. We know the time. And since we know the time, he says it's the hour. It's the hour for us to wake from sleep. To wake. There's a slang that is being used, it's been used for the last couple of years. It's the word woke. Are you woke or stay woke? And it's the past tense of the word wake, obviously. And the idea of it is to, and, and I was gonna make the point live woke, right? But I'm not quite that ghetto anymore. And so <laughs> the idea of it is, is live conscious. Live aware of what's going on around you. See through everything that's in front of you. Little did we know that that started with the Bible. Wake from sleep. Let me give you my point and then we'll unpack how we do that. Here's my point. Knowing the arrival of Jesus is coming. Knowing that it's coming. Awake from sleep. Awake from sleep. What that means is to live aware of the time that you're in. You know the time. You know life is short. This is what amazes me when Christians are so caught off guard by death and suffering. We, we know that. We've got the biblical basis of why death even entered the world. We know that, Genesis 3. Why, why are we surprised by that? I think a lot of it is because we're not living awake. We've kind of been lulled into sleep and we've kind of just gone into the rhythms of the world. 
thinking that because we're Americans that we're not gonna suffer. What? Wake from sleep. Wake up. Like literally, some of you, wake up. <laughs> Just kidding. I can't see if you were dozing off. How do I do that? Great question. Look at verse 12 and 13. He tells us, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. This verse right there is a good reason why you should check your kids into Rev Kids. I'm just reading the Bible. Don't hate me, all right? What is that? Ask your mama. Better yet, ask your daddy, right? What does he say? Let us cast off. I love that word there, cast off. The Greek word is apobalo. Apo is a preposition. Balo is the word, the verb means to throw. Uh, apo means to away from, so throw away from. So he says, cast off the works of darkness. Now that's a command. It's written as a command. So you know what that tells me? The Bible automatically assumes that I got works of darkness I need to cast off. You got works of darkness you need to cast off. Why else would Paul wrote this to Christians? Cast off the works of darkness. Why? The reason why is because even though our hearts have been regenerated, even though our hearts are, are in love with Jesus, even though God gave birth to new life in us, our minds may not be renewed. One chapter earlier in Romans chapter 12, he says, in view of God's mercy, transform by the renewing of your mind. See, I think a lot of believers have regenerated hearts and uh, un unrenewed minds. Yeah, you may be saved, but your mindset is not on the things of God. Your mindset is on the things of the world. Your mindset is not being renewed daily. You have to cast off the works of darkness. And it's written in such a way that the, the very act of doing that affects you. And it's written in such a way where there's no timetable on it. it. It means that keep doing this over and over again. So it's like every morning when you wake up and hopefully take a shower and brush your teeth and you know, put on deodorant, you know, I'm trying to instill that habit into my kids, right? I don't want my kids to be the stinky kids with the stinky breath. And, you instill that in the same way. Tell them, I said hello. In the same way. What he's saying is literally like every day, get up and cast off. Cast off the works of darkness and put on, he says, the armor of light. This is not something that you do as a one-time thing. Salvation was one time. Baptism was one time. But putting off and putting on is a daily exercise. A daily exercise. Cast off, put on the armor of light. I love this word armor. It means weapons. 
weapons. Every day, we've got to take up our weapons. What are our weapons? We'll get into this in January when we talk about habits. Our weapons are our habits, our spiritual formation practices, like reading our Bible. This is the word of God. It is the sword, like praying, like fasting, like giving. Those are all what theologians call means of grace. If you've come to Newcomer, I describe this every time we come. It's like working out. See, spiritual growth happens by indirect effort. The fruit of the Spirit never comes to you when you go after trying to be patient. Have you tried that one? You try to be patient, and then God puts you in a circumstance to show you that you're not patient. But he didn't put you there to depress you. He put you there to say, listen, Holmes, you better get into the habit of reading your Bible. You better get into the habit of praying. You better get into the habit of fasting. Because it's doing those things, that's working out that muscle is grown, that the spirit is grown. See, the same God, I, I can't sit here and make my biceps grow. I can't, I can flex them, but I can't make them grow. How are they grown? By resistance training. How is your spirit grown? How is your heart grown? How is your mind renewed? By resistance training. By putting on the armor of light. By being a disciplined person, by reading our Bible, by praying, by fasting. I promise you, when you begin to fast, you will see how undisciplined of a person you are. Because about three hours of not eating, your stomach starts whining like a two-year-old kid. Feed me, feed me, feed me. You get to one day, you're like, oh gosh, this happens every time we do a fast. Friends start texting me, I hate you. I'm just trying to help you grow because there's a bread that you need more. There's a, there's a bread that, there's a nourishment you need more than your daily food. What's amazing about the third day of the fast, your body starts to realize what's going on and, and, and quits acting like a spoiled child. And, and you kind of get into this rhythm. And we're, that's why we're gonna do a 21-day fast. Again, I'm reminding you, starting on January 8th of 2018, all right, we will have one Sunday service before then on January 7th, but I'm just reminding you that on January 8th, through January 28th, we are doing a 21-day prayer and fasting. Why? So that our church can put on the armor of light. So we can cast off. And here's what I will promise you. I will promise you this. If you pray, you fast, you read your Bible over those 21 days, at the end of those 21 days, you will have a lot more spiritual power than you had at the beginning. I promise you. God's word is true. You put on the armor of light. And here's what's amazing. When we put on the armor of light, then he says, let us walk properly in the daytime. Let me say it to you like this. You can't walk properly in the daytime without the spiritual habits. Let us walk properly. That means mannerly. Behave correctly. How do I behave correctly? Before I ever start my day. I'm praying, reading my Bible, fasting. I'm putting on 
the armor of light. And the more we put that on, guess what? The less we will do these things. He says, not in orgies. That just literally means a drunken party. It's literally what the word means, a drunken party. Drunkenness, we know it's a sin to get drunk. Sexual immorality and sensuality. Do you think we gotta kind of have a problem with that in our culture right now? Like, have you been watching the news at all? Seems like every powerful person in Hollywood and, and, and media is being taken down. Here's the irony of it. The week before, Harvey Weinstein, I think that's his name, how you say it, before he was found out, the week before, here's the irony of our culture. A pop icon named Hugh Hefner died. And when he died, people celebrated him. He was a cultural maverick. He brought in this era. They celebrated him. They lauded him. And then a week later, we find out that as a result of the kind of culture he helped create, now all these powerful men in power are being taken down because finally, women are having the courage to speak up. Do you see the irony in that? The irony of that, one week we praise it, the next week we got morals. See, see, here's what I'm saying to you. We can never expect the world to be the leader in morality. And listen, as Christians, it's going to become increasingly harder to stand by our sexual ethics. One man, one woman, together forever. Not being active before marriage. It's gonna become increasingly harder if it aren't, weren't already hard enough, right? To live out that ethic. But how do we do that? He tells you, by putting on the armor of light. Wake up, church. L let me ask it to you like this. If you were convinced that Jesus was going to come during the night tonight, would you give in to temptation as much tonight? Would you give in? He says, the day is at hand, the night is far gone. See, here's the irony. Christians are supposed to be of the light, but we're living in the dark, thinking that no one can see us. But God says, the Bible says about God, the darkness is like daylight to him. He can see it all. We're not fooling him. I'm not fooling him. You're not fooling him. And I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about patterns. I'm talking about progress. I love how he says it. Let us behave properly. You know what he's saying there? Let us grow up. Let us quit acting like a 13-year-old. See, it amazes me that believers in Jesus can sit in a church for years and years and years and still be just as much of a coarse joker as they were when they first trusted Christ. Ephesians 4 says, let no coarse joking come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up. No corrupting talk. Now, does that mean if somebody cuts me off in traffic and I cuss that I'm going to hell? No. 
What that means is the more I put on the armor of light, the less I start responding like I was still in my flesh. There should be a progression here. Remember, we're, we're talking patterns. We're talking progression. What I'm saying is this. If the commandment to love one another was not enough, if the commandment to be holy was not enough, then the time should be all the motivation you need. The time. Jesus is returning. He's coming. The arrival of a notable person is coming. And when a notable person is coming, I remember in my middle school, Barbara Bush, who was the wife of the president at that time, came to our middle school. It was drug-free. It was this whole drug-free emphasis. She came. Our whole town shut down. And, and I lived right across the street from my middle school. I mean, it was a crazy ordeal. Why? Because a notable person was coming and we had to get ready for her arrival. We put up signs everywhere. Why? We're getting ready for her arrival. Now, if we took all that for the wife of the president, the first lady, how much more so should we for God? Let that be the motivation, man. Time is running out. You don't know if you have tomorrow. So cast off those works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. When you do that, you'll behave properly like in the daytime. And then the last thing he says is this, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What's amazing here, this phrase put on, it's the same, but what I found so amazing when he said, make no provision for the flesh, that word provision literally is referring to thought processes. Let me give you the definition. It's provisional thinking. It's cognitive process of thinking about what you will do in the event of something happening. Before we ever act out in our bodies, we decide it in our minds. This is why I talked about an unrenewed mind. Before it ever happens in our hands or in our feet or out of our mouth, it's thought about in our minds. And what Paul's saying is make no provision. You know what he's saying? Not make no provision in, in how you live just with your body, but, but make no provision for the flesh even in your mind. That's where the stronghold is. We now know this after doing all the neuroscience studies that we have. That the very first time that you make a decision, it's, it's like a forest. If you just imagine a forest with no trails, the very first time you make a decision, you cut a trail in that forest. And our brains are lazy. And so what they want to do is they want to go down untraveled uh, paths. They don't want to cut a new one. That's too hard. And so when you decide in your mind that you're going to do this and then you do it, guess what? Next time you come into that situation, your mind's going to say, this is how we do it. When they cut you off in traffic, this is where we tell them to go. This is how we talk. When they make you mad, this is what we do. When that show comes on, this is what we do. When you smell the cookies, this is what you do. 
And so before you ever get into those moments, you got to put on the armor of light and putting on the armor of light is what renews your mind. And you have to tell your mind, listen, mind, I'm not making provisions for that anymore. What you're saying is I'm cutting a new trail. I'm cutting a new habit. And they say you can do it in 21 days. It's not really 21 days. It takes longer than that. Not to disappoint you, but here's my point. You cut those new trails, you cut those new habits, and you watch how you become a different person. Make no provision for it up here to make you gratify its desires. Listen, your flesh has one desire. Your flesh has one desire, and that is to rob God of his glory. This is why Satan knows exactly how to get us knows exactly what to say, exactly what to do. He's been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We show up and he trips us up just like he did before. His tricks aren't new. But we gotta awake. We gotta awake to the reality of what's going on around us. You wanna know what motivates me, and, and I want you to hear me. I still struggle with sin. And I will for the rest of my life. And there are certain sins that I just feel like conquer me at times. But you want to know why? I do everything within my power, guided by obviously the power of the Holy Spirit, to keep fighting, to throw off and put on. You want to know why? Because of you. Because of you. Because the time we're in, because of my kids, because I want people that are within my sphere of influence to know that I never quit fighting, never quit sharing, never quit going after joy, never quit going after more people knowing Jesus. And I've said this to you before, but I mean it. What keeps me holy somewhat holy, I should say probably, is you. Is the idea that we still got work to do. And like Paul says, after preaching, I don't want to disqualify myself. So here's all I'm saying to you, and we're done. Wake from sleep. Awake to the reality that there is something bigger going on, and God has invited us to be a part of it. And when we see that, we understand that, we will love each other. We will put off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Why? Because we got a greater work to do. And that is glorifying God. So let me say it to you like this. You'll either glorify God or gratify the flesh, but you can't do both. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction that it produces. Every single one of us here are feeling like we've been wasting our, our life in some ways, that we've got sins that are tripping us up. And God, that's not guilt, that's conviction. And that's good. 
Because that means your Holy Spirit's working. And so God, we pray that we would receive that, we would see that, and we would commit to throwing off and putting on. But God, we know we can't do that. That's the thing about the Bible. You give us commands and tell us to do things that we've got no power to do. That's why we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. But the first question is, do we have the Holy Spirit? Are we children of darkness or are we children of the light? There are some here today, God, that are still living in darkness, which means they're not saved. They haven't crossed over from death to life, from darkness to light. So God, I pray right now that you would save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close, but I just want to ask you the simple question. The only way you can prepare for Jesus' second coming is believe in his first one. Believe that he was God, that he did live a sinless life, that he did die a sinner's death, and that he did raise again, and he did all that for you because he loved you. If you'll believe that, the Bible says you'll be saved. So if you've never trusted Christ, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. And it's not so much the prayer that saves you, it's the confession of your own heart. It's the opening of your eyes and that's all of God. If you wanna trust him for the first time, to yourself, not out loud, pray this with me. Say, God, thank you for loving me. That you sent your son in my place for my sins. I give you my life. Save me, forgive me. Thank you so much for loving me. Now again, nobody looking around or talking. If, if you just prayed that, I want you to do one thing for me. And the, and the reason is, is because we want to know and celebrate with you. But if you just trusted Christ, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Just lift it up. Thank you. We got men and women are gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put your hand down. Then those of us who would say we've trusted Christ, but if we're being honest, we've been living way more in darkness than we have in light. I want you to hear me. I do not want you to leave today feeling guilty. That's not the point of the sermon. I want you to leave today awake. Determined to keep fighting, to keep throwing off and keep putting on. And every time you sin so easily, hit your knees immediately. Say, God, help me. I don't want to waste my life. You're coming soon. I want to be prepared. I want to advance the kingdom. I want to abound in joy. I want to live awake. And I promise you, God will always answer those prayers. You have a promise. You sow to the spirit, you will reap life. But if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap death. So the sign of a true Christian is not a confession. The sign of a true Christian is you never quit giving, uh, you never quit fighting sin. You hate it. 
You don't give up the fight. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. God, I pray this Advent season will be a reminder to us as we celebrate your first coming in a few weeks that we would be reminded of your second one. Help us to live in light of that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, for you guys get out of here, let's give it up for those who trusted Christ today. Thank you. We're so, so incredibly grateful for you, proud of you. It's the best decision you've ever made. And as always, after we're done, we've got men and women down front who would love to pray with you, love to talk with you. If there's something you need prayer for, you're struggling with, please let us know. That's what we're here for. If you can make it today at two, we'll see you then. If not, we'll see you next week. I love you.